grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 17, and we are, we are so thankful in this church for the Word of God. And the Word of God um, has a lot to say about itself, and throughout history, uh, many people have made incredibly true and powerful statements about the Word of God. In fact, one of my favorites was spoken by Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great 19th and early 20th century preacher, he said this about the word of God. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. I love that. And his point was not that we don't need to defend the faith. Scripture clearly tells us that we need to be capable of defending the faith. His point was that we can have a confidence in the effectiveness of proclaiming God's word, that we can have a confidence in believing that God will do what he says he will do through his word. Spurgeon believed, as have all of the saints throughout history, that the spirit of God would honor the preaching of his word. We're in a series that we've entitled Breaking Through the Barriers, And I just want to encourage you as we think about breaking through the barriers when it comes to moving the gospel forward, that requires of us the utilization of weapons. And there is no greater weapon in the Christian's arsenal than the word of God. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that this is the sword of the spirit. This is the weapon that we have to fight with. It is the weapon that we are called to wield in this warfare that we are engaged in, this spiritual warfare. It is a powerful weapon, a weapon that we can have great confidence in. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is so powerful that it can break through the hardest of hearts, and it can expose the sinful heart of a human being in a moment, in the blink of an eye. Jeremiah 23 verse 29 says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Isaiah 55 11 says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish all that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will spread. That is a fact. That is a promise given to us by God himself. His word is powerful. It is, in one great sense, unstoppable. But his word always, always will spread, and it has always been spread by those who have experienced, listen, it's transforming power and believe that it will do what it promises to do. And as a church, We believe that God changes people's lives by the power of his word. I hope you've experienced that this morning. That you have experienced the life-transforming power of the word of God. That it has been to you like a fire. It has been to you like a hammer. It has been like a sword that has pierced your own heart. We believe that we are in desperate need of the power of God's word, and we believe that there is a world around us who is in desperate need of the power of God's word. And so I just want to invite you, we believe so strongly in the power of God's word, listen, but we believe so strongly in the power of prayer that God will take his word by his spirit and use his word. So just um, pray with me one more time. Father, we, 
We humbly bow to you, Lord. You are our king, you are our master, and your word is truth. And we, Lord, want to acknowledge that this morning. We believe that your word will do what it says it will do. And God, we believe that it will do that right now. We believe, Lord, that your word is going to impact hearts in this place this morning. We believe, Lord, that it can pierce our hearts. Lord, Christian and non-Christian, believer or unbeliever, Lord, we believe that your word will do exactly what you promise it will do. And so, God, we are just asking you that you would humble us, Lord, that every heart here would be sensitive to hearing what you would have us hear. And God, that you would put your power on full display by transforming sinners like us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that in this place this morning, you would put your power on display by saving some lost sinners, by bringing them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son. Lord, do so for the glory and praise of your great name. Amen. I want to read for us, beginning in Acts chapter 17, just the first four verses. So look at it with me and and read it with me. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, I'm going to say this right, Amphipolis, sorry, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Our objective this morning is to have our hearts tuned to the word of God, specifically to what the word of God says about itself and to be a people who believe so firmly that we must be spreading the word of God. And if we are going to spread the word of God effectively, we need to be a people who are this first, standing firmly on the word of God. If I can give you one word, here it is, authority. Standing firmly on the word of God means that the word of God is our our authority. It is what governs our life. Verse 1 tells us, this is um, the Apostle Paul and He's got his missionary team. This is his second missionary journey that he's on. He's with Silas. He's brought Timothy with him. If you remember back a a few pages in your Bible, and now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And here they find that there is a synagogue of the Jews. This was Paul's custom to find a place where there were people who already believed in the authority of God's word. This was a hundred mile journey to the capital of the province of Macedonia. uh, Thessalonica is a very important city. It had a flourishing commercial center. They'd come from Philippi, if you remember. They were kind of run out of Philippi. And here we read this, that in this very, very big, probably around 200,000 people, most estimates tell us, there was a large Jewish population. And again, it's not unimportant that the first thing Paul does is go to people who believe already in the authority of God's word. They find a point of contact. They find common ground. And I just want to remind you that he's walking into a city that he would ultimately plant a flourishing church there. He would write to this church two letters in our Bibles, the first and second Thessalonians. And I just want to read to you just really briefly the first four verses of chapter two of first Thessalonians. Just listen to what Paul says. Kind of helps us get the context. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And for our appeal, he says, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. They have come from preaching the word of God and suffering for preaching the word of God, but as they enter into this city, they they want us to be reminded that they are coming from God, they are coming for God, and they are coming with God. They're standing on the word of God. It is their authority, and I, I believe just as we look at how Paul enters into the city and he uses the word of God, it becomes very instructive for us. How can we stand firmly on the word of God? And I just have three Three kind of sub points for you. The first one is this, um, with profound simplicity. Paul begins to share the word of God with a profound simplicity. Notice the word that is used there. In fact, I'm gonna draw out from here, there are six different verbs that are used in this section to explain or describe what Paul is doing as he opens the word of God. And the first one is this, that he reasoned with them from the scripture. Our method is not to be overly complicated. In fact, it is, in one sense, profoundly simple. We talk with people about God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. We believe firmly and are convinced with great conviction that God wrote a book. God has spoken, God has told us who he is, who we are, and how we can be made right with him. And Paul has for us uh, this very almost simplistic approach. He walks in with the word of God, he opens the word of God, and he begins to reason from the word of God. He's in one sense declaring, look, God has already told us everything we need to know. It's actually in one sense quite simple. Now don't be confused, that doesn't mean there's not some complex and difficult things to understand. There certainly are. But I think Paul is reminding us that we we need to have such a confidence, listen, in the word of God. This book makes sense. Did you know that? This book is so logically coherent. It explains the world around us and explains, listen, us as human beings like nothing ever could. It describes God so powerfully, so perfectly. Without this book, we would be utterly lost. And I think Paul just wants to remind us, listen, that we don't need to be complex and complicated. We simply need to open the book. We need to reason from the word of God. We don't need to be brilliant. We don't need to be clever. We need, in one sense, to let God do the speaking. I'll never forget watching a a video was at another church and they showed a video of, of a man who was so stubbornly resistant to the truth of God's word. And people had been you know, trying to talk to him about the gospel and, and a deep, dear friend of his was trying to minister to him the gospel and this man was so just opposed and angered by the gospel and, and through a bunch of circumstances, finally this man's friend who was an elder at a church, he, he went and he met with this man and he sat down and, and he had taken his Bible and what he had done is he had put 12 sticky notes in his Bible and he had labeled them one through 12. 
And one beginning right at the very beginning of the Bible where uh, it talked about God's desire to be in a relationship with humanity, two, moving into the idea that humanity, through their sin, had fractured that relationship. Listen, all the way through to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the final, listen, book, the last book of Revelation where it says that our relationship with God will ultimately and finally be fully restored. And, and he sat with this man, and, and he, he, he had talked to him before about the gospel, but he simply said this. He said, listen, I've told you so much before. I don't know what else I can say to you. Listen, would you just do me a favor? Would you just look at these tabs and just start reading each one? And he sat there kind of, you know, with this scowl on his face, like, fine, I'll do it. And he opened up to the first tab, and he read it. And he opened up to the second tab, and he read it. And by the time he got to the third tab, he was weeping. He was weeping. You see, the power of God's word had done its work. It had impacted this man's heart so deeply. Listen, not even through the words of his servants, but through just the power of his word had shattered this man's heart. And in that moment, that very day, the man's heart was shattered by, listen, the hammer of God's word. And he bowed low before God and embraced the central theme of God's word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I just want you to be encouraged that listen, God's word has immeasurable power. I can't tell you how many testimonies I have heard. I know people, I have friends who were reading the Bible and were saved simply by reading the pages of scripture. The Bible tells a simple story. The story of God's design for human beings, the story of how Sin has fractured that in the story of God's great redeeming love and coming for humanity. We need to be people who reason from the scriptures. Paul does this, I'm sure, so masterfully, but in our profound simplicity, listen, we need to seek to bring a penetrating clarity. I don't want for a second to give the impression that God isn't going to use us to communicate his word with great effectiveness. I think it's very, the scriptures are very clear on this. You know, there's a reason why I don't just simply stand up here, although some of you may prefer it, and read a section of scripture and go and sit down and say, have a great day. There's a necessity for the scriptures to be explained and unpacked, to, to have clarity brought to the word of God. And you'll notice, just look at what it says in the word of God. Look at what he does. Uh, he's reasoning from the scriptures, and then you see the words that are used right there. It says that he began explaining and proving. Those two things are working side by side together. Paul is bringing a penetrating clarity by explanation and by arguing, by proving the truthfulness of the scriptures. Having a discussion with people is the starting point. Laying simply the scriptures out for somebody is incredibly important, but we want to bring greater clarity. You know, I was reminded in this idea of explaining the scriptures, I think, is really brought out powerfully at the end of the Gospel of Luke. You'll, some of you will be very familiar with this story. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus shows up after his resurrection, and he's speaking to two men who are confused about all that's happened. And he says this, using the same word in Luke 24, verse 32. He says, that they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Listen, here's the word, while he 
opened to us the scriptures. The idea there was this, as Jesus walked with these men and talked with these men, he brought them into the scriptures and he didn't just kind of give a surface glossing over, he unpacked them, he opened their eyes to the depth and the wonder, the mysteries that were there were brought to light before their very eyes and I love the response of the heart that begins to understand with greater clarity the truth of God's word. There was a burning in our hearts. But the light switch has been flicked on and all of a sudden things begin to make sense. Listen church, as we are standing firm on the word of God, we are seeking to show people, to explain to people, and to prove to people that the word of God is truth. The content that Paul explains is Christ. Make no mistake about it, the central theme of scripture, everything that Paul preached and everything that we ought to preach ultimately ends in Jesus Christ. It is all about the hope that can be found in him and the salvation that only he can give. Naturally speaking, whenever we talk to people about the word of God, people have questions and rightly so. Many, maybe even in this room, have legitimate questions about the Christian faith. Paul expected that questions were gonna be asked and so should we and he kind of models this, this sense of willingness to hear and to dialogue and to discuss with people. You know, he didn't get his back up against the wall when somebody questioned or pushed back. He was wanting to and willing to engage in a deep and meaningful way with the questions that they had. After all, the gospel, the word of God tells us, is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. Paul had to prove, that's the next word he uses there, that this gospel had to be the way and was always the way of salvation. He wanted to show that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, contrary to popular belief, uh, Christ was not the last name of Jesus, okay? It was a title. And you'll notice that it's used that way by Paul here. It was necessary for the Christ. Do you see how that's being used? It's a title. And the word Christ simply means Messiah or anointed one. You see, the Jewish people were expecting what the scriptures said they should expect, that God was going to bring someone from the line of David. Ultimately, listen, stretching all the way back from the line, listen, of Abraham, the first promise to Abraham. And this person would be the anointed king. And I, I believe with all my heart, we've seen this in other places in Acts, that Paul simply went back to all these different places in the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah and what he would be and what he would look like and what was necessary for him to be able to accomplish our salvation. And he simply walked methodically through these portions of scripture and he engaged with their questions and their rebuttals. And, and I think that for the most part, Paul was so competent and Paul rightly understood the scriptures that we, we should probably believe that Paul confounded constantly these Jewish religious elite. The ones who refused to believe were probably confounded and trying to process, trying to wrap their minds around all of these powerful truths that were being proved in the scriptures. The word prove literally means that he carefully answered questions and responded to objections. He is demonstrating the validity of his claims. I, I love that church, you wanna know why? Because I just think it's important for us to know and believe uh, that scripture actually can be proven, that the truths that we believe in can be supported. We can demonstrate their validity. We can have great confidence. All often, uh, and you shouldn't be afraid of this when I'm engaging with people about 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, people will, will often have really, really fascinating, intriguing, and sometimes very deep and difficult questions that they want answered. And I just want you to know that uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm really quick to say that's a great question. I believe the Bible has an answer for that. I have yet to come across a question that the Bible does not give some sort of answer for. It may not give it with the kind of clarity and depth that we're looking for, but it certainly gives us answers. And you'll notice not only explaining and proving, but he says here, proclaiming. He says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Again, make no mistake about it, the content that Paul proclaimed was Jesus Christ. Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4, he would say, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Do you see how Paul understood and unpacked the scriptures? He said it, he thought it was very clear. You know, sometimes in our eagerness to be relevant to people, you know, wanting to kind of meet people where they're at, it's not a bad thing, by the way, in some ways, but, but sometimes, trying to be sensitive to people's felt needs, we may be tempted to actually ignore the cross. I've seen this time and time again. We're so quick to want to show people how the gospel can fix this part of their life that we can often forget about the most important part of their life that needs to be fixed. It happened again. I was talking to somebody this week who was in from out of town and they were visiting another church and they said they walked in and they were the only people holding the Bible. And uh, though one mess or one verse was put up on the screen, the entire message really had nothing to do with the Bible. The name of Jesus Christ was not even mentioned. And the goal, in one sense, of this church was noble. It was trying to address a felt need and trying to help people and meet people where they're at. But church where there is no Bible and there is no gospel, there is no real help. Jesus, yes, he does meet our felt needs in that sense, and that can be a great starting place, but we must learn to move beyond the mere felt needs of our lives and press people to see the greatest need of their life, which is to be saved from their sin and to be made right with the holy God. This is our objective, and this is the kind of clarity we need to be able to bring to the world around us when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must become experts at laying out people's hearts and showing them that they are grasping for God. That's what they're doing in this world. That's what they're really after, and all of the idols that they're seeking after, the places they're trying to find joy and satisfaction. You know what you're trying to do if that's you? You're trying to grab God. That's what you're trying to do. You're just reaching in the wrong place. That's why you can't ultimately be fulfilled by those things. That's why you, you need more or different or better. That's, that's the problem of our hearts. God says, put your arms around me and let me, let me heal your brokenness through my son Jesus Christ. Right? It was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. It was absolutely necessary. This is the whole heart of the gospel. Uh, I love it. Paul does not shy away from the difficult things in the gospel. And he brings with such clarity. Jesus Christ had to die. He had to suffer. Why? Why? Because our offense was so great. If he did not suffer, listen, if he did not suffer and die, we will suffer and die to pay for our sins. So he suffers and dies in our place. 
It was necessary for our hope, for our salvation, for our joy, and it was necessary that he rose from the dead. He can't stay dead. If he stays dead, the sacrifice for sin is not ultimately accepted by God, but praise be to God, Jesus rose from the grave. He is greater, he is more powerful, he is stronger. I love what Mark said this morning. Our victory is already found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of that, because of that, we can have hope in life. Lastly, as we're thinking still about standing firmly on the word of God, notice this, we need to share the word with profound simplicity, we need to share the word of God with penetrating clarity, and lastly, with patient urgency. It's not a contradiction, I promise you. But I want you to see how these really, really are two necessary aspects of the gospel. You notice the next verbs that he uses there in verse four, and some of them were, here's the verb, persuaded, and here's the other one, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. You know, I, I love this. This is, this is such a, a sweet picture, and, and I want to back up a little bit into verse um, one as well, or verse two, excuse me, where it says, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. I mean, can you just see Paul's urgency in his intentionality? He is just always on it. He's going, going, going. His persistence, he keeps coming back. You see what Paul says is this, if there's an opportunity, I'm gonna be there. If somebody's willing to have me come back again and share Christ, I'll come and do it every single time, right? And the three days, and, and by the way, if we read 1 Thessalonians, we know that he was likely there for three months and he poured himself in, heart and soul to these people. He just keeps coming back. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 on the screen behind me. I love what Paul says here. See, why did Paul do this? Listen to this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, listen to what he says, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul understands what's at stake. Listen, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it comes to what awaits human beings who do not have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he understands the devastating reality that they will one day awake to, and the fear of the Lord, not only the fear of obedience in his own life in a healthy and right sense, but I believe in a, a, fear, of a fear of the Lord in what awaits those who do not know the Lord God Almighty. He says, we persuade people, and there's an urgency behind this, and listen, we do this, we persuade people, because, with such urgency, because we are convinced that we are called by God as heralds of the definitive revelation from God. There is no other truth that can save. There is no other hope apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ that is found only in the word of God. Don't worry about that. This is our hope, amen? And so we are persuaded of this and convicted of this and we believe it so firmly that we must persuade others. Since we believe that this is true, Christian, listen, if you believe this is true, if you believe all of this, if you believe that there is no other hope apart from this book, if you believe that the reality for people apart from Christ is hell, you must persuade people. 
You must do everything in your power. Listen, you must be willing to give of yourself so that people can know the truth and believe the truth and find life from the truth. This is, this is listen, I, this is in one sense very basic Christianity, but this is one of the hardest things for us to do in our complacent Christianity, isn't it? And it's easy. It's easy for me to get up here and preach this in one sense. I understand that it's very difficult for us to do on a daily basis. I understand the challenge it is in my own life, and I just want you to know that I feel convicted by this, and that I am desperately asking God to make me more urgent and more intentional and to not waste my time on trivial things when there are people around me who are in desperate need of the help of the gospel of Jesus Christ who will die and suffer for all eternity for their sins. I just don't want to treat that lightly. And God forgive us, right, for doing that. God forgive me for doing that. It may be in our hearts this morning to say no more, no more, no more. And you know, evangelism always aims at a response. You know, I think sometimes we like to tiptoe around this, but I just want you to see that the idea of persuading people and the fact that people actually, the implication is that people were persuaded. And and, you know, like in Peter's sermon, tell us what we should do. I don't think Paul ever left this off. Respond by placing your faith. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And those who respond are joined to the church. You know, there, there is a patience is in our approach to people, isn't there? There's an urgency, but it's mingled with a patience because, you know, we don't just give one, you know, somebody one shot and then we blow out of there. And, you know, we love people and we care about people. And maybe some of you are sitting here because somebody loves you so much and they care about you so deeply and they desperately want you to know and believe the truth of Jesus Christ. And, and they've been patient with you. And I hope that's your heart. Listen, church, that we are so patient and compassionate. I sat with somebody this week and, and, and somebody who had been saved fairly recently and we talked and we reminisced about how somebody, listen, has spent years meeting with them every chance they got talking to them about the gospel when it was appropriate obviously and he didn't know this at the time but this person he knows now he found out later not even from this person but found out later that this person would leave their conversations and weep weep over this person and pray and beg God for their soul And now this person is standing on this side of the cross, embraced by Jesus Christ with the hope of eternal life. And you know what the awesome truth is? Now this person sees this example and is like, I want that to be me. I look at the people I love and I care about, and God, would you give me a a patience to come alongside them, to not throw the towel in, to not give up on them, and to believe, listen, here it is, church, listen, to believe, to stand firmly on the word of God, that the word of God is powerful enough to shatter the hardest hearts and to bring even the most unrepentant sinner to their knees that's our hope and so we affirm and we defend laying out the word of God with a profound simplicity with penetrating clarity and with a patient urgency we are standing firmly on the word of God secondly I want you to see this we need to if we're going to spread the word we need to submit completely to the word of God If you're looking for one word, here it is, supremacy. Verse 5 through 9 says this, but the Jews were jealous. You know, it's inevitable whenever, this is the pattern we see, wherever people are persuaded and embrace Jesus Christ, there's always some kind of opposition that comes. Just get used to it, all right? But the Jews were jealous. 
and taking some wicked men of the rabble, right? They get the worst of the worst. They rally a bunch of no good, lying, thieving scoundrels, and they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Jason was obviously the one who was either hosting them or boarding them. Verse 6 says, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed, and they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. I love the example here of what it looks like to follow Christ. You know, sometimes following Christ means that you invite hardships in your life. It means that you invite opposition, and it means that you invite persecution. And we as Christians need to be willing to submit completely to the Word of God in the most challenging and difficult times. It is to be supreme over us. And while some people were persuaded, as usual, like I mentioned, other people were incredibly aggravated they rally this mob, and you can get the, the picture here. This isn't really that complex. They're intending to demonstrate the gravity of the situation to the officials, right? Let's, let's get a, a mob mentality going here, and we can see if we can get the governing authorities to do something quickly, you know, swiftly deal with this situation, get rid of these troublemakers. And so they stir up the city. They drag Jason out. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they grab this landlord, uh, the host home that he's staying in, whatever that might have been, and they try to make a public spectacle. And, and here, really, what they're doing is they're, they're demanding some kind of an immediate public trial. Let's have a, an official, authoritative verdict on these men and their religious convictions and I, I love, here's the heart of their argument, verse six. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, right? It, it can be translated kind of like this. They've caused trouble all over the world and now they've come here? Verse seven kind of adds weight to it, right? He's saying they, they claim that there's another king, this king named Jesus. You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to say that these guys want to undermine the, the authorities and the governmental structure. You know, Caesar's our king. Can you, can you hear in the background the crowds chanting uh, around Jesus right now? We have no king but Caesar. What a familiar sound. The frantic multitudes in Jerusalem screaming out their allegiance not to this fake king, Jesus, but to Caesar. Oh yeah, we bow down to Caesar. You know, in the greatest sense, the, that picture of Caesar reflecting the world, isn't that the truth? You know, opposition gives us an opportunity to declare our allegiance in a really powerful way. There is something profound about being attacked for our faith, about experiencing opposition, and then standing up in the face of the, listen, the, the threats of pain, of 
torture, of imprisonment. Isn't this true? And, and this is why we respect so greatly the persecuted church around the world. There's something so profoundly powerful of somebody willing to stand up, to drive their stake in the ground and say, I don't care what you do to me. I don't care what you say about me. Take my life. Take everything. I am committed to King Jesus. That kind of submission you say, you say, I don't know if I'd be able to do that if, if I was in that situation. Can I just tell you this? That is the kind of submission required if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It is not optional. It is not optional. Listen, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, we would do that if we were confronted. You know, how sad is it when we don't face nearly the kind of opposition that many people do around the world and we cave and capitulate in our commitment to Jesus Christ? But you know, Jesus said that this was gonna be the reality for those of us who want to follow him. He said this in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You know what he says? The gospel of Jesus Christ divides people. It draws lines in the sand and what it does is it challenges who our true allegiance is ultimately to. What or who will we ultimately love most? If everything is put on the line, who will we choose? And for the Christian, it's simple. Not easy sometimes painful, we choose Jesus. You know, to submit to the word of God is to submit to the God of the word. And we call people, listen, part of this is this, it's not only that we see a demonstration of Paul and Silas and even Jason submitting to the word of God just with such a wholeness, a completeness, I think the example is a statement to the world that they too must submit completely to the authority of King Jesus, to the authority of God's word. And you know, I'm not sure our gospel presentations often reflect this necessity, this gravity. In fact, I would venture to say this, that a gospel presentation that is never offensive is likely never authentic. Can I say that again? A gospel presentation that is never offensive is likely never authentic. If we're true to giving the gospel, then we realize the gospel will confront people at the deepest levels. It will challenge people to the core. And I love verse six. This is one of my most favorite phrases in all of the Bible, right? To be a, a, a Christian, excuse me, is to live in complete submission to the word of God, and it is to be a Christian who is, I love this, to be a person who is turning the world upside down. Don't you love that? That's meant as an insult. You realize that in the text? These guys are troublemakers. They're flipping the world upside down. Uh, they're disturbing you know, the way we like things, the way things are. They're turning everything upside down. I love that. I wanna be the kind of Christian who is turning the world upside down. And this phrase that is intended to silence these men, really, look, it's being used to spread the word of God more powerfully. And that's what we do. We, we confront and we challenge the world. We turn the world upside down. That's how, how radical our gospel is, by the way. And in one sense, what they said was true. 
right? They're turning the world upside down. They're upsetting the apple cart, so to speak. But in another sense, what they don't see is even more important. The world in its natural state is already upside down. You see, see, the disciples and us as the church, we're not going out there trying to turn the world upside down in, in that sense of the word. What we're trying to do is turn it right side up. That's what the gospel does, isn't it? The world is already upside down because of the fall, because of sin. You see, sin came into the world and it fractured everything. Just think about this for a second in your own life. Think about how upside down and how chaotic and how distorted so much of our lives are. This is a result of the fall. This is the world we live in, okay? Sin enters the world and relationships are fractured, right? You ever fight with your spouse? You ever fight with other people? More importantly, the relationship with God is fractured. Sin enters the world and our desires are distorted. We, we desire impure things, wrong things, ungodly things, unholy things. Sin enters the world and our purpose is skewed. We live to find purpose, to find joy and satisfaction in all kinds of different things. And all of this, listen, is painting the picture that the world we live in is already upside down. So when men and women in Thessalonica were turned around by Christ, when they're flipped around, everyone else saw them as upside down. By the way, if you're a Christian, get used to that, okay? You ever had anybody say, you're, you're a little bit different? <laughs> Sometimes they mean it's a good thing, sometimes they don't. Either way, listen, if you don't look any different from the rest of the world, you may not actually be different from the rest of the world. The gospel makes us different from the inside out. And I, I love this. The attack, again, there's, there's subtle truths to it. They, they were in no way trying to undermine the governing authorities. They, they didn't, you know, I think of Peter who wrote about obeying the, the government and the authorities over you. And get, by the way, he wrote under one of the most atrocious dictators ever known to humanity, Nero. They weren't trying to subvert the governing rule. What they were saying is this, in the spiritual sense, you need to surrender your life to the greatest king of all. We have submitted to the King of Kings and his word is supreme in our lives and we now live countercultural, and we confront this truly upside down world with the king who alone can flip it right side up. Third, we wanna be spreading the word. We need to be submitting completely to the word of God and finally we need to sit humbly under the word of God. There's a really, really sweet section of scripture here. And, and it's very familiar to most people who've been in the church, and I just want to unpack it briefly for us. They let Jason go, they, they pay some kind of a, a fee, lets them go, and verse 10 says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. It tells you how serious it was, the disturbance, and maybe the threat on their life. They had to do this under the cover of night. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Again, it's the pattern. Look what it says about these Jews. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. 
Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. We need to sit humbly under the word of God. And one word, uh, receptivity. They're sent away by night. They get to this city called Berea, and they head straight to the synagogue, and they find that these Jews are more noble than those in Thessalonica. There's something about them that's more honorable, and that the text wants to point to, it doesn't leave us guessing. You say, what makes these people so much more honorable? It's this sense that they're more open-minded, they're more willing to receive. That's the point here. You see, we demonstrate noble character by the way we sit under the word of God. We talk a lot, and we have talked a lot recently about our delivery of the word of God. The book of Acts is pointing us to go out into the world and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, and rightly so. We have been very concerned about how we're speaking about the word of God, how we're handling the word of God, but one of the truest signs of an effective Christian is how they receive and respond to the word of God. And I I hope that we can learn from these believers here how we can make the most out of sitting under the word of God to pastors dream to preach a passage like this first thing is this with eager anticipation you want to make the most out of sitting under the word of God you want to sit under the word of God with all humility come with an eager anticipation there is very clearly here a deep hunger for the word of God in the hearts of these believers they want the truth they want to know the truth And they received it, it says, with all eagerness, an eagerness to know and to embrace the truth, not just to challenge and confront the truth. I mean, contrast this with the kind of apathy and laziness that often characterizes so much of the modern church and maybe characterizes our lives sitting in here right now. I talked to a pastor this week and he was sharing with me some of the things God is doing in the church and he was so excited. One of the things he shared and we were rejoicing in together that there seems to be a growing hunger, uh, uh, kind of this undercurrent in the life of his church right now, a burning zeal for more of the word of God. Can I just tell you that that is something God uses in a mighty, mighty way when his people long for his word, when there is an eagerness and an anticipation that when God speaks, he's speaking to me. See, that's, that's part of the eagerness here. You say, well, I want that eagerness. Realize that when God's word is opened, when you read it in the morning, when you set aside that time and you come face to face with the pages of scripture, God is saying to you, I am speaking to you. I am addressing you, my child. I have something for you. When you have that kind of an eagerness, that zeal and that hunger only grows. So let me ask you this morning, is that you? We must be a people who believe so firmly in the power of God's word and the necessity of God's word. I think of Jesus, you know, who tempted in the wilderness. His response needs to be our response every day, doesn't it? Man cannot live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe that, 
You will never hunger after the Lord. You will never long for more of his word. But if you wake up in the morning and you tell yourself and you believe so firmly in the depth of your whole, I desperately need this to survive. I cannot survive today spiritually. I cannot thrive today spiritually. I cannot do what God is asking me to do unless I have met face to face with my king, with my savior. I need him. I need more of him. Oh, may that be our heart with this eager anticipation. Secondly, with careful examination. Sit under the word of God with eager anticipation, but, but sit under it with careful examination. Notice that they're examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And the point there is this. Every time Paul spoke, that their eyes were not just glued to him. Church, look at me for a second. This, this is a visual illustration. They weren't just looking at him. When he spoke from the word of God, what did their heads do? Somebody show me. Bam, down. Okay? This is good, healthy practice in the life of the church. When somebody speaks to you from the word of God, look at the word. Figure out, is that true? Is this what God is really saying? Do you know how easy it is to manipulate the word of God? Do you know how many people are led astray because somebody distorts and twists the word of God and everybody sits there and goes, well, pastor said it, it must be true. Don't ever, ever, ever let that be your defense for why you believe something. Ever. Your defense should never be, well, I believe it because Pastor Ian said it. Please, 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 let me beg you. Don't ever let that be your defense. Don't ever let it be your defense. Don't ever stack up a list of, you know, evangelical teachers. You know, all these people say it, so therefore I believe it. Believe it because the word of God says it. Amen? Amen. This is our authority. And we need to be experts at examining the word of God. They combine eagerness with examination and that is a recipe, listen, that is a beautiful recipe for some serious spiritual growth. I love, I love reading books that stretch me to think about things the way I've never thought about them, to test, to examine. The word used for examination is used of judicial investigations. It implies integrity and absence of bias. In other words, they're asking good questions, seeking legitimate answers. They aren't trying to make the Bible, this is important, they're not trying to make the Bible fit into uh, some system. They're seeking to have the Bible rightly order their thinking. It's been said like this, some people are critical of everything, some embrace everything, the wise weigh all things by the word. This is so important for us. We want to be careful Christians that view God's word as the supreme authority. And the term Berean has been applied to people who study the scriptures with impartiality and care for millennia. My prayer is that that would be me and that would be you. Lastly, notice this. Sit humbly under the word of God and you can grow in this with active participation. I love this here. Many come to faith. Did you notice that again? I, uh, Paul preaches, people believe. And I love that in both sections, did you notice this? That some of them uh, who were believed were many, a great many of devout Greeks and Jews, noble people. And I just, I think that there's something to this that we need to understand. Look, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter how great you are in a worldly sense. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter your background. Listen, everybody comes to Jesus the same way. Bowed low. And what we see here is that the opposition comes again 
and I love this, these, these fresh new believers who are so zealous for the things of the Lord, they're seen here immediately helping. The brothers, it says in verse 14, immediately sent Paul off on his way. And, and I, like, I, this is so subtle, but I just want you to see here that the heart of a Christian is to participate in the work of the ministry. Even in the smallest ways. The Word of God is never intended to produce intellectuals, or excuse me, passive intellectuals. It is intended to produce active participants. Thomas Akempis once said this many, many, many years ago. He said, on the day of judgment, you will not be asked, what did you read, but what did you do? We have a world filled with Christians who know much but do little. May it never be so here. May it never be so with you. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved to actively participate in the spreading of the word of God. Isn't that great? Paul would write to the Thessalonian believers in 2 Thessalonians 3, just listen to this. He said this. His last chapter that he wrote to them, he, he begins with this. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we commanded. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ Jesus. You know, our heart as, as elders and leaders in this church for our, our lives and for you, for us corporately, is that we would be a people who are standing firmly on the word of God, who are submitting completely, and who are sitting humbly under the word of God, knowing and believing that when we are faithful to God's word, God's word will always be faithful to us. He will not fail us. Amen, church? May his word spread among us and may it be spread through us. Father God, we pray, Lord, that this would be so, not for our glory, but for yours. God, we love you. We love that you have revealed yourself to us. God, we are so undeserving and we are so grateful. We're so overwhelmed, Lord, that you would not only reveal yourself to us, but you, you would desire to use us. So God, we pray that we would be a people who love your word, who esteem it and put it in its rightful place, Lord, not because of the book itself, because of, Lord, what the book shows us about you. How the book points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the true word of God. God, we thank you that your word will never fail us. We thank you, Lord, that we have an anchor for our soul. We thank you, Lord, that you promise to do through this book what you say you alone can do. Lord, would you use us, would you use this church for your purposes and your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.